So thank you all for coming out for week two of our workshop here on Bible interpretation, just as a way of reminding us of our goals for this. Only, and I say this because I looked on the public calendar, and it, and it like said something like, how to interpret the Bible. And I was like, no, yes, but no. That, it's not like I'm going to stand up here and say, you have to do this, and then you have to do that. As we found out last time, this is a, a workshop for you to consider what you're bringing to it, and then some ways to refine what it is you're doing, and maybe even say no to a few things. Maybe we realize, oh, I've been bringing this baggage to it, and I need to, I need to toss that, or to confirm some things you bring uh, to the Bible as you read it, and maybe some refinement gets you to think a little bit more about the process of reading and making meaning, and not so much step one, do this, step two, do that. So just, just to remind us of what we're doing here. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, ask for the Lord's blessing, and we'll, we'll get into this evening's discussion. Father, I thank you for your goodness, for opportunity to come and be with your people and discuss your word and to challenge each other in the ways that we approach your word and to seek out a better method and a better way of thinking about how to approach the scriptures. So Lord, I ask that you make our time alive tonight, that you come and you speak and you bring clarity. And Lord, help me to communicate and stop me where I need to be stopped and bring, bring words of wisdom where it will bring life to your people. So we give you thanks because we know that you are in this. We know that you are in the business of communicating yourself through your word. So we pray that you'll communicate yourself tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. thought I, not only is this sort of workshop format a bit of an experiment for me, I figured I'd experiment a little bit with the toys also, some of the gadgets. So it'll be, some of it's just sort of window dressing, but some of it may actually be helpful in, in a way. So we'll see, and if we need to adjust things along the way, just let, let me know, because like I said, this has been an experiment, so we'll find out what's, what's good. Moving along, we'll just do a quick recap of what we talked about last week, that we talked primarily about making meaning, about how do we as people, when we approach text, how do human beings approach communication and understand what's being communicated? How do we make meaning out of something? All of that for the purpose of answering the question that sort of plagues us as a Bible-believing people, and that's why are there so many interpretations? Why is it, if, if it's so straightforward, if we're supposed to rely on this text to understand who God is and how He works in the world, then why is it that people come up with so many different answers. And we explored that a bit last week. We, I started us off with a non-biblical discussion of Periander and Thrasybulus. Anyone uh, can give me a quick recap of Periander and Thrasybulus? What was going on in that story? <laughs> there was so, lots of, there's plenty of miscommunication, okay? We all forgot Periander and Thrasybulus. I, I know it's been two weeks. Yeah, go for it, Josh. Uh, so Periander was a newly installed tyrant. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. He wanted to get advice on how to rule his kingdom, and the messenger sent for advice to watch the... Was Thrasybulus the guy getting, getting the advice? Right. Okay. Watched him cut off the tallest wheat and steel, and then got no verbal message, and went back and described that to Periander. He understood that he meant kill your most uh, highest potential citizens who might lead a rebellion against you, whereas the messenger didn't understand. Good. Exactly right. So this is a, a rather stock text narrative from antiquity, about both about how to rule, and Aristotle uses it as a discussion of politics and how to rule, and but people in my field, we use it as a way to discuss 
how communication works and where it, where it goes wrong and where it goes right and how people can make meaning out of things differently. The same exact event can make different meanings. And so we drew a few conclusions out of that that people have different expectations when they come to texts. And so that will lead to a certain narrowing of what will be heard. If my expectations are to receive the message in a certain format, then any other format means I don't hear it. I don't get it. We talked about perspective. We talked about the fact that having a lot of experience in something changes the way I view it. I made the point that the more Bible you read, the more Bible you understand. The less Bible you read, less likely you are to understand much of it. That gaining perspective, a breadth of experience will give you better command of what's going on. And then also investment, that when it means something to you, you hear a message a little differently. That when it has some sort of impact directly, there's a different sort of hearing that takes place and meaning that's made quite frequently. And that led us to a discussion of the way that people come to events, to texts, with a certain set of biases where we have we discussed our each of us discussed our own how did I refer to them I think I called them prior allegiances but biases basically was the point that we have to know what our biases are or at least have some concept at least all admit that we have biases there was a time and place and there are still some people who will say I'm not biased I'm just reading the Bible for what it says it just says that I have no biases that's just what it says and go, okay, yes, I understand, but we have, to, we have to step back and you have to at least admit that you have something that you assume. And so we, we talked about some of our prior allegiances, things that we, lines we wouldn't cross, things that we know we come to the text and there's basically no way that this can't be true or untrue, depending on the, what you had to say. For instance, I brought out that I can't, I have a prior allegiance to the Bible being harmonious, that there is no contradiction in it. So if there's an apparent contradiction, that's my prior allegiance is that's my fault, not the Bible's. That's not a flaw in the Bible. That's a flaw in my understanding of how to deal with it. So that's a prior allegiance I have, which means sometimes I'm going to do some, I'm going to go through some machinations to make sure that it, is, it remains harmonious. Some people, skeptics, will look at that and think, well, that's because you have biases. And I say, yes, so do you. We all do. We all do. It's just which ones are you choosing to admit to? And then last, we talked a bit about these couple of passages and sort of what about the Bible do these passages bring out? The fact that Peter can even talk about Paul and say that some of his stuff is hard and people mess it up and it leads them astray has some implication on what it means to understand the Bible. And that if Paul can tell Timothy, you have to work to be shown that you're doing it right, that you're doing this interpretive method right, that you're handling the word right, that you're counseling people correctly, that you're teaching right doctrine, that it takes work, that you need to exert yourself to do that, then that has some implications for us when it comes down to how we read. So in summation... When it comes to why it is that the church ends up with so many different interpretations or the world at large with so many different interpretations, well, people have prior allegiances that don't allow them to have different, don't allow them to have certain interpretations. A naturalist just isn't going to believe in miracles, just isn't going to happen. Not making one's interpretive philosophies and methods part of conscious thought, knowing all of these preconceived notions, these biases that a person brings, that will affect, that will change. So we'll wind up in different places. And lack of work. Just not spending time in the text. Not spending time, as we'll find out, extra textually even. That outside of the Bible, there's work to be done outside of the Bible to bring it into the Bible too. So not doing work will lead you to wrong answers. It's easy, it's easy to just read the Bible and come to a wrong answer. That's easy to do. And that's one of the reasons. So tonight, I wanted us to talk about participants in the interpretive method.
So a useful way to discuss how people generate interpretations is to focus on each of the participating members involved during an act of interpretation. When scholars of interpretation talk about how it is they arrive at a meaning of a text, one, and this includes biblical interpretation, they tend to emphasize one participant or another. So if I say participants of interpretation, what I'm saying is who and what is all involved when someone sits down and reads something and comes to meaning. So let's just hear. What do you guys think? Who or what is involved with an interpretive act? Okay, author, reader, what else? Okay, good. When it comes to believers, that's for sure. Holy Spirit's there, especially when it comes to the Bible, but in all things, as believers, the Holy Spirit's there. The person being written about? Okay, I can consider that. How are they involved? Don't know. Okay, so. Okay, so the reader, everything the reader brings, right? What about the text itself? There's the thing, the object. So there's a person who writes, there's the object itself, and then there's the person reading. And Alice is absolutely right, and we're going to hold that because that's going to be an important point that God's involved in all of this at some level. And a lot of, unfortunately, even in Christian circles, even, even we would consider very conservative, evangelical, God-fearing, good Christian people will argue that that's not important, that the God component isn't very important. And they wouldn't say it that way, but that's the way it works out when it comes down to it. So when people talk generally about interpreting, they talk about at least these three, the author, the text, and the reader. Last week, we talked quite a bit about the reader, so I'm going to kind of skip over that, because that's what we were dealing with, is what do readers bring when it comes to the text, in particular to the Bible? What do we as readers bring to it? So I'm going to move on past that. That'll come back around either at the end or in our last session. But let's think about the text for a minute. Let's think about text and what we do with text and what, what does it mean? What does it mean to to read, to interact with something written. What does that even mean? What's going on there? So I put, as is, you'll see my habit now, I put a classical passage on there for you to engage. Let's just take a look at that. I don't expect you to be able to read it up there. But I put it on your, put it on your handout here on the top of the page. This is from one of Plato's dialogues, one of Plato's philosophical works. And Socrates is, in most of his works, the lead character in most of what Plato wrote. And it's usually, it's called a dialogue format. Socrates will be in a conversation with someone else. And in this particular, and in partic- this particular work, he's talking to a man named Phaedrus, uh, who's kind of a recurring character. And they're talking about all kinds of things. And at one point towards the end, it's about writing. And Socrates is criticizing writing. He's criticizing writing and reading. That might surprise a few of you, but he's actually saying how bad it is, how bad it is for students to read and write because, man, their memories will just go downhill because once you start writing, you're going to forget everything because why do you need to remember it anymore? And then you come to this passage, another criticism of writing. So I'll go ahead and read this. It's Socrates speaking. It says, writing, Phaedrus, has this strange quality and is very like painting. For the creatures of painting stand like living living beings, but if one asks them a question, they preserve a solemn silence. And so it is with written words. You might think they spoke as if they had intelligence, but if you question them, wishing to know about their sayings, they always say only one and the same thing. And every word, when it is written, is tossed about in the same way by those who understand and those who have no interest in it. And it knows not to whom to speak, or not to speak. And when mistreated or unjustly insulted, it always needs its father to help it 
for it has no power to protect or help itself. So I want you to take a few minutes, just think about what is it he's saying here about reading and making meaning out of a text? What is his criticism? I think it's the question one. Yeah, what is his chief criticism? Just take a, take a couple minutes, jot down an answer. What do you think he's really criticizing about writing here? All right, once you've done that, go ahead and take a look at question number two. What's his solution for this problem? Or what does he say is necessary? If, if, it's, if writing is to overcome its problem, what's necessary for it? What does it need in addition? Take about two minutes and discuss with the members at your table what you think or what answers you gave for those two questions. Okay, let's hear from a couple of the tables. Let's hear from a couple of the tables what, what we came up with. What did we uh, come up with in the front here? Anyone from the front, front, my left, your right, have anything in particular? Right. Right. It doesn't care what you think. You can't change it. It's, it's just what it is. That's right. It is what it is. That's his big complaint. It is what it is. What, what about in the middle table? Criticizing both the author and the and that's true. He he is he's criticizing the entire writing reading enterprise because he this character Socrates in this particular speech wants people to just philosophers people who know what's right and good wise people to spend time dialoguing and and just grow it. Later in this speech, he'd go on to talk about does a does a husbandman does a farmer does he plant his seed. And just do it for entertainment and not care if it comes out or what. And he says, no, of course, he plants and then he waits and he's patient and he takes time and he grows it. Same thing with a philosopher and knowledge type of thing. So, yes, he's criticizing the entire enterprise. What about, back of her, what about solution? What about for question two? What sort of, what, what is he criticizing? What is he, what's his remedy, supposedly? I put down, like, sometimes you need, um, like, the creator to kind of, um, Right. Right. And what does Socrates call him? The father. Yeah, the father of the text. It needs its father to come along and explain it. Yeah, his solution is the author, the father of that idea, has to come along and make it clear because it can't answer any questions. When you challenge it, it just looks at you blankly. It gives you the same answer. Imagine, I don't know, a, a pantomime or or a parrot that can only say two words, and that's it. No matter what you ask, it's going to say the same thing. And so that's his criticism of writing. Yeah, John? You could always read it deeper, go in and look at it closer and slower, mm-hmm. try to get uh, the meaning out of it. Right, for sure. And, but who's the one doing it then? Is the text changing? Right, it's the reader. So his criticism would hold, or at least, now I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying Socrates was inspired, okay? So don't misunderstand. I just want us to think about text. I want us to think about as we approach uh, a written text of the Bible, are the words changing and moving around as we're reading it? And when He's trying to communicate to the reader. That's right. That's the assumption for sure. And I think that that's one of the, one of the things I like about this passage most is that Socrates' assumption is that a writer is trying to communicate. And if we wanted to fix this whole reading problem and understanding problem, you go back to the author. You go back to the author's intention. And perhaps later we'll come back to why that's problematic in this day and age. Yeah, Mark? I really like the comparison to a painting because you, know, you look at a character like from the Renaissance or something and, 
And all of us can look at that and see different things in their expression or their, the way their eyes are or, just, or the lighting on them. But you know, you don't know what they had for breakfast. You don't know, you really don't know anything about them. You're like putting everything, you're projecting into them by visual clues. Right. That's good. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And so I love this text as, a, as an example of a lot of the things that are going on, both explicit and implicit, both the implied and the things that we know consciously and the things maybe we don't think about consciously, comes out in Socrates' criticism here about, about reading and writing, is that, yeah, it's like a painting. It's static. It's not, it's not changing. It's not doing anything. It's attempting... Well, I say attempting as though an inanimate object has an intention. But there is some communication taking place. And my position is that the author, the creator, the painter, or the writer, is the one attempting to communicate with people. But you're right. When we bring, like we discussed last time, when we bring a lot of stuff in there, it, it communicates differently. John? Is that a fair comparison? The painting is, is there for... Um, beholder to interpret what he wants. We're writing there's a specific... Well, that's an assumption on your part. And I'll get back to that. I agree with that assumption. I think it's a good assumption. Uh, like I said last time, there are good biases and there are bad biases. Biases themselves aren't bad. So let's get rid of bad biases and keep good biases. So that's one I think you should keep. I think that's one I hold. That's a bias I have is that when someone writes something down... They intended me to understand something. They didn't intend it to be nonsense. And when it is nonsense, it's usually because someone is intending it to be nonsense. So they're still communicating an intention. Okay. We yeah, Mark. talked about how in modern music, and I guess in older music too, um, where there's a meaning in that, the, that the writer of the song based it on, but it, it said, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, like, you know the song Jeremy spoke in class today? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's about a, that's about an experience of a child committing suicide right. in his class. Right. But it doesn't say that. Right. You know, so there's this underlying thing, and it's open to interpretation. Do you have a camera in my office? Because I was looking at Bruce Springsteen songs this afternoon to make this very point. Actually, Todd, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, born in the USA. Well, I'll just we'll just skip to it then, since you brought it up. Born in the USA. How many times have you heard that at a, a more conservative-leaning political rally or even the Reagan administration in the 80s during, uh, I think it was his re-election campaign, co-opted it uh, as, a, as a pro-USA? Everyone's really excited. But Springsteen wrote that about disaffected middle Americans who were working hard and weren't achieving the American dream and about the disillusionment after Vietnam War. And it had nothing to do with pro-patriotism. But... Don McLean's American Possible. Right. such hidden meaning all that. Right. Um, another one I think of... What was another one? Oh, John Fogarty, It Ain't Me. You'll get, you'll get swaths of that song where people cut it out because it sounds so patriotic... And, but if you listen to the whole song, he's saying, I'm not, he, it's a Vietnam War, yeah, protest song, exactly. And, and so when people receive these things, they receive them based on, to a large part, what they want to hear, what they want to hear. And so they grab the one part and they ignore the other part, and so they bring certain things. In. Right. Mm-hmm. While you were looking at Springsteen, did you take an interpretive glance at Thunder Road? <laughs> No, I did not. <laughs> okay, let's move along. So two of the things that I wanted us to think about as we think about text, and the, when it, especially when it relates to the Bible. First is that a text alone communicates a great deal of information, but it does not communicate all possible information. And that's part of Socrates' criticism. I can't expect it to tell me everything I want to know. I don't know what the lady in the painting had for breakfast that morning. The painting doesn't tell me somehow. I can't find out. The text only says so many things. So it doesn't communicate all possible information. And that is true of the Bible as well. When it comes to reading the Bible, it means the Bible isn't going to answer every question we can bring to it. 
It's not going to tell me whether or not I should go see a rated R movie. Not directly, anyhow. There may be implications. And it's not going to tell me which things I can watch or what an appropriate cholesterol level is. I can bring all kinds of questions to the Bible that it is not going to answer. It is not going to tell me those things. It's going to tell me the things that the authors intended it to. Those are the things it's going to tell me. And it won't tell me more than that. Now, there are good and necessary implications and consequences that can be derived from what it says. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it doesn't speak to every area of human life and experience. Just that it doesn't answer every question I can bring to it. Not directly, anyhow. And it answers something about method. That the Bible is going to give us answers in a way that the author of the biblical text understood their questions and their answers. Because it's a text... The authors, if it is true that we need to go back to the authors, which I think we're all agreeing uh, fundamentally, if we were in most universities right now, there'd be half of you would be saying no, because that's all the rage. But I think most of us agree that when we want to know what a text is supposed to communicate, we go ask the author what it's supposed to communicate. The same is true of the Bible. That means those human authors that wrote these texts had particular agendas, interests, and that it's going to communicate first and primarily about what they intended it to communicate about. Now, I'm not saying we stop there, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we stop there. Right, Alice? I'm not saying we stop there. That there's, because we have not cut out the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to it as a text, it is going to speak to us first and primarily about the things that the writers intended to talk about. I wanted to ask the question of you, how do you think about the Bible as a text? When you look at the Bible, what is it? What is the Bible? What are its features? If, if someone asked you, what kind of book is it? What kind of writing is it? What would you say? So take a couple minutes, just think about that, write out, what is the Bible? Just... What is it as a text? Take two minutes and discuss at your table. What is, what's your answer to the question? What is the Bible as a text? How is it you view the Bible as a text? All right. Uh, I would love to hear. I don't think I heard from. Did I hear from this table last time? Did I? I don't recall. Let's have. What What is the Bible? Someone from this table. We kind of had a big built compile everything, but um, just that it's it's a book that's different authors, um, different genres, different languages. Uh, it's not one. There's history in it. There's. It's almost like uh, you know biography of different people's lives and a guideline of how we should there's just so much all inspired by God mm-hmm. okay good uh, let's did, did I hear from this table last time did I skip you guys I can't recall oh, not last time. what's that oh, not last time, no. okay um, I guess I have a tidy one um, a, a collection of books of a variety of genres written by men for a variety of purposes but guided by God's in- by God's inspiration, communicate timeless truths for everyone for all time. Okay, good, good. What did you guys come up with? <laughs> I did not get that spiritual. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I put it's a self-help book. A self-help book. Okay. All right. Other thoughts? What about this table? Adam, what did you come up with? Uh, a collection of books inspired by God, written by man, um, explains the creation, history, and laws of Judea, which mm-hmm. also inspired the, or which also led to the New Testament. Okay. All right, good. And from this table, one of the marks this time? Um, 
I could just say the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. <laughs> Lance? Lance? Um, a, a series of books and letters written over a span of hundreds of years by men inspired by God to use words to communicate the central thing. Good, yeah. Uh, here's what I wrote when I thought about it. And this is just real quick, if I had to spit it out of my head, something like, Bible is a series of 66 books written across centuries by different authors, collected, compiled, and copied for transmission to those who believe in the God who is the central protagonist. It's a group of community texts written by individuals and groups for the members of their community. Something like that. And it sounds like we all generally came to a similar, to a similar idea. Now... Here are some of the things that I want, and it didn't sound like we went here, and so that's good. But here, here are some of, and I don't, as one of the elders, it's one of my responsibilities, however much I may not enjoy it, to caution people about things. So if this is one of your things, I'm not trying to single you out, I'm not trying to embarrass you, and I don't want you to be hurt. I'm going to caution you. What the Bible isn't. It's not a cryptic cipher that we try to derive secret meanings out of. That is not what it is. It's not... It. Jerry said this to me after the last session. I thought it was really good. The Bible, and I think we're all on board with this, the Bible is more than literature for sure. But it isn't less than literature. So as we all discuss the different genres the different authors, the different writings. That's sort of what you're saying. It is written by men, and I add, superintended by God, inspired by him. And we'll get to that. But it was written by human beings. It is human literature from certain cultural contexts, from times and places, in particular languages. So it's not less than literature. It's not less than human writing. It's more than that, but... It's no less than that, so we can't treat it like it isn't. And this is one of my personal pet peeves. It's not a Rorschach test. It's not an inkblot test. Now, that isn't to say that it doesn't show you who you are. It does. The Bible will show you who you are, what sort of man you are. The book of James makes that very clear. Someone who hears the word and then goes away and doesn't do it is like someone who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. So the, the Bible will show us who we are. There's no doubt about that. But it's not, it's not a psychological test. It's not a whatever I want to see in this blot, that's what it is. The same thing with the Bible. It's not whatever you want it to be. It's not just however I feel. It's not a... This is going to get me in trouble, but I'll go ahead and say it. It's not a, Lord, what's your word for me today? Flip, spin and then put finger down. That's not how it works. I'm not saying God isn't merciful sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes that happens in our ignorance or in our foolishness or our desperation. He will, he will, he will do all kinds of things for his children. Uh, but that's not how it works. That's not what the Bible is. So it's not, it's not those things. It is the things that we've said and, and far more. And as I've been thinking about it, one of the reasons is, is because it is about God. And God cannot be comprehended by one man. So it takes a lot of people seeing him, interacting with him, with him revealing himself to people over time, to encompass and reveal himself would take a lot of, a lot of time and a lot of human beings, as finite as we are. So as a series of texts, it takes a lot of history, it takes a lot of poetry, because he hits on all levels of the human experience. He's God. He knows all about us. He made us. So it takes all these different experiences and genres and expressions and metaphors and stories in order to communicate a full picture of who he is. It certainly is far more than just literature. Now, it's not less than literature, but it's far more than just literature because he's so incomprehensible. It takes a lot to communicate when you're that incomprehensible. Can't a short, you just had the, let's just say, the letter of Philemon, a little too short to tell us everything about God. Or any single book of the Bible would be too short to tell us all we know about the Lord. 
So he gave us a whole bunch. He revealed himself over time in, a different, in different contexts, in different ways. Okay. Do you think it's a complete, a complete revelation? <laughs> I think it's as much revelation as we need for salvation, faith, godliness. Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to be careful how I answer that because <laughs> I, don't, I don't want people to hear what I'm not saying. Um, it is all that we need to know who he is uh, and, to, and to experience salvation and to have a relationship with him. So let us then turn our attention because in order to properly understand what the meaning of a biblical text is, one must be able to reasonably, and I emphasize that word, reasonably reconstruct what the human author intended. We have to be able to reconstruct reasonably to, to a certain degree of certainty what a human author intended by that text. So I want us to go ahead and, and look at, I have another passage there, Ruth chapter 4. On the back, why don't you all take a couple minutes because it's sort of a name list at the end. It would be kind of annoying to read aloud. Why don't you take a minute, read that, and answer question number four for me. Now we're going to turn to the author and the context and all the things we talked about. And answer the question based on these verses alone. The very end, the last verses of Ruth. What do you think was the author's purpose in writing this book? What did he intend? And when would the book have to have been written? So take a couple minutes and read through that and think about it. Okay, go ahead and talk amongst yourselves. What did you come up with? Okay, let's hear some let's hear some answers. I'll take just randomized volunteers here. Or whoever you decide to volunteer at your table. We kinda of had to um, possibly to to show God's restoration and, and the hope that he brought and then also um, his faithfulness to Israel and also a, giving a lineage, a historical lineage of the, you know, from David back, back oh. up through. Okay, lineage from David back and uh, an example of God's faithfulness yeah, to... And restoration. To, and restoration. Okay, other ideas? About when it was written? Sure. Um, when do you think it was written? Two generations before David was king. Two generations before David was king. What do we think about that group? Well, what would be the problem of it being written before David was king? It would be prophetic if it was written before David. Yeah, you'd have to have a real clear insight on a few things if it was written before. Not only uh, you'd have to know that there was going to be a guy named David who was a son of Jesse, but you would have to know specifically that he would be someone important yeah, for some reason. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I wouldn't say it's written before David. What would you think? What do you guys think? Okay. After David. After David, what do you think? Maybe even David wrote it. I don't know anyone who. It's within the realm, the universe of possibilities. We'll say that certainly it's within the universe of possibilities. Now the event. Okay. That's right. Event was a couple generations before. What do you think? Probably Sean? after David's fame or maybe even life or maybe after he even had died. Okay, yeah. Good. Okay. So if we take it on its face value as a text, David would have had to have been someone, one, important enough to write a story about his grandmother and someone that, who, who was so important somehow to the community as a group of people that you would want to record something about this man in general, let alone about his grandmother. Or is it grandmother or great-grandmother? Great-grandmother, yeah. 
So he would probably have to have already been king of a united Israel before this could be even before someone would take the time and then preserve such a manuscript in this sort of fashion and, and give us a lineage. So, okay, with that in mind, what do you think is the purpose? The author's first purpose? Mm-hmm. Well, David, I'm not sure that at that point they'd be looking for the Messiah in the terms that we think of. That would be if you... David kind of is the beginning of what we consider an anointed king in, this, in, the, in the beginning of that full sense like we think of as a Messiah. So he, um, he becomes so central of a figure in, in Judean thought and in religious Judean thought and in um, their view of themselves, viewing themselves as a people united around a central figure, that that's where, out of David, sort of this idea of Messiah. Now, we all understand that it's also the Lord who's working through time to make that happen. But where it kind of starts with what we think of as a Messiah figure, David's kind of that, that first big one. And um, so it must have already happened. Yeah, well, it just means anointed person. Right, so, yeah, it, they, the only one before that was Saul, and he was kind of a bust. So David kind of becomes, well, there was another one shortly, one of Saul's sons for a very short while. But, yeah, it was basically David, who's the first real anointed king of a unified Israel. And um, perhaps the purpose is to explain how God has been superintending the events of even his family's life before this hero king comes along and unites Israel and throws out their enemies and creates this unified kingdom of Israel. That Yahweh has been ordering this for generations, that here will come this... And as we all know, Ruth was from what country? Moab, yeah, Moab. Now, were Moabites allowed to become... Members of Israel? No. So we kind of have to explain that too, don't we? That's where Naomi fits in. Right. So we have to explain how God is superintending the events and circumstances of Israel, even through a Moabite S, so that our King David, he's not non Israelite, he's not non Jewish. In fact, he is, and God, God is the one who gave her conception and bore her son. And what sort of faithful religious woman is she throughout the text? So we have someone who is a member of the community, and God has been superintending the events and circumstances in history to lead to this path where David could become this king. Right. So it sort of tidies up a few things in his family line, doesn't it? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is at the same time a reference to Christ, isn't it? The Redeemer of Israel. Now you're talking about fuller sense, and you're you're all over my next week's discussion. See that camera? You need to take all that camera out of my office. It's just a listening. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. It certainly, but in order for it to be those things, and what I'm trying to drive us to is that it's that, it's the things we've been talking about, about David, about the man, and why a people would write and save a story about that. And then there's so much more that God does with that on top of it, because the author of the Bible, not the author of this text, the author of the Bible, as we understand it to be God, he had so much more than even the human author could intend. So much more, but not, but not different, a, what we call a fuller sense, a sense that the author couldn't have consciously been aware of, but one that lines up exactly with what the author was already doing. This makes God amazing. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, and that's why it takes a lot of books to do that, because you don't see it. If we just had Ruth, would we understand that that's what God was doing? No. So it takes a lot of books, doesn't it, 
to make that point. It takes a lot of history. It takes a lot of self-revelation through history. How does it fit in with the study? Oh, we're so not there. We're so, you, you guys are trying to do next week, this week. Let's do this week, this week, and then we'll do next week, next week. You ever heard that sermon? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone else heard it, but I remember being by Oral Roberts about the, um, the Christ in every book. How that, that red line, the red thread, I forget what it was called. Yeah, I definitely agree that, and I think Luke makes that explicit. Jesus makes that explicit in the book of Luke, that the whole Bible is about me. On the road to Emmaus, that's what it's That's called. right, that's right. The whole Bible is about me. Okay, so let us, and, and just hold that thought for another week, because that's, that's exactly, you're all over next week. One last question. If we're going to reconstruct, as we just discussed, we didn't an attempt to reasonably reconstruct what an author might have intended, uh, the purpose of a text like that. That was sort of a mini experience in doing that, taking part of a biblical text and say, what could an author of this text been trying to do with this? Now, it was in isolation. There, we pull a lot of stuff from other places. I heard Renee saying, I'm trying, not to, I'm trying not to bring in everything I know, just answer the question as asked. And that's tough, and that's because you're... You're supposed to do that, and that's what we do naturally. And that's why God, I, I hope we're getting the message that that is one of the reasons why the Bible is so big and there are so many different styles of literature and so many different books is because that interconnectedness is, one, how we make meaning. We make meaning that way. And two, it takes a lot for God to reveal himself because there's so much to reveal. Do you think David was king when this was written, or was it probably, probably? Right, exactly. Um, where do you think the quote comes from? Because you're looking at what 60, 70, 80 years at least. It was probably a traditional story. Just somebody passed down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. Yes, I think it is probably during once he's already king that. And it, it's a lengthy discussion. There's lots of scholarship. In the ancient Near East, most kingdoms had a, what's referred to as a scribal culture. So there was an entire working class of professional scribes whose entire livelihood was both memorizing, copying, recopying, learning different stories, compiling them, collating them at the temple. And we know that this happened at the temple in Jerusalem, that there was an entire section of the, the temple and the palace where these scribes lived, and that's what their job was, was to copy these things and bring different texts, create libraries, basically. All right, so we just tried, took a little experiment in making meaning, trying to understand the purpose of a text and reconstruct the author's intention. Look at question number five. Take a couple of minutes, and this will be the last one for tonight, Take a couple of minutes. What are some of the inherent difficulties with doing what we just did? As we approach a biblical text, what are some of the inherent difficulties in trying to reconstruct what an author might have meant or intended by a certain text? Take a couple of minutes. Write down a few thoughts, you know, bullet points. What are some of the things that cause difficulty there? Inherent with the author and the text. Let's... Not uh, let's not redo the our own problems, but what stands in between us and that author that causes those difficulties? Go ahead and chat with yourselves amongst each other. All right. What are some of the things, as I heard some really good comments, don't want to name any names because then everyone else will think, well, he didn't call me, that means he didn't think mine were good. Heard some really good comments as I was listening. Anyone like to share some of the things that you think make it difficult for you to, to get in the mind of that author and, and understand what he was trying to communicate? What are some of the things that stand in between you and, and him? So there's a difference in time and culture, ways of taking phrases or assumptions. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yeah. Others? You've encapsulated a lot. The word that scholars use is distance. Distance. That we have 
They call it distantiation. But distance for short. Distance, we have all, all of the things you said, Joshua. There's distance in so many different ways between us and them. So you mentioned a few. What are some, just start, everyone, what's, what's one time, okay, temporal distance, what else? Okay, linguistic difference, good. Cultural difference, good. Yes, I don't know everything this author knew. That's right, sometimes the stuff that he knew is lost forever. There are books of the Bible that reference other books, like the book of Jasher. Guess what we don't have? I'd like to have that. That'd be pretty cool. Have another book that the Bible references like that. We don't have it. Tough. Absolutely. They know things we don't know. Other distance. There's one that really... that. What do you mean by that? Well, we're isolating a text, and we don't know exactly what it refers to in the grand scheme of things. Okay. So we're isolating context. Right. Right. To some extent, thankfully... When we put that super arching, overarching super author, God, back onto it, we can, we can have faith that we have enough context to make an appropriate meaning. But you're right. When we isolate a book at a time like this or, or a, a section at a time like that, definitely we'll fall into that problem. A big one that rarely people mention is this type of distance. Because we assume a lot about our predecessors in the faith. But if you met Abraham and hung out with him for a day, you might get nauseous. Because he's probably a lot more accustomed to bloodletting animals and then cutting them open and pulling out their innards and slapping them on stones and offering them up as sacrifice. We should do that one Sunday. No, thanks. That's right. So religious distance. Now, I don't mean that we don't share the faith of Abraham. So don't misunderstand me. But the practices are very different. Even all the way forward until the book of Acts. The book of Acts is when Christianity starts to look like something when the faith of our fathers starts to look like something we recognize. Before that, it's a very different, the religious practices are very different things. And there's a lot of religious distance between us and most of the people in the Bible. Most of them. So, as we read, let's not assume that they're operating. Go read the book of Malachi. Half of it, well, Almost the entire thing is about religious practices and them doing it wrong. Them doing it wrong because their attitudes are all wrong, as well as them doing it wrong. Because it's about religious practices. So yes, it speaks to us because it's also about the motives of the heart. So there's religious distance. Now, just a couple of things before we wrap up for tonight. A couple more thoughts I want you to consider before next week is that how certain can any of us be that we have reconstructed an author's intention? How certain? On the scale of, you know, I don't know, zero to ten, ten being very certain, zero being no certainty whatsoever, what, what do you think? This is just opinion. This is not scientific poll. What do you think? What's that? Why? Um how much of any of these specific issues do you have knowledge of? You know, how much knowledge of a culture do you have? How much knowledge of the history do you have? So wherever you're at in each of those things, it's going to affect how much confidence you can have in Okay, good. Yes. All the things we're talking about, all the issues we're bringing up, the more we're conscious of them to begin with means we can actually go learn about where we're lacking. If we're not conscious of them, guess what? Probably not going to become aware of where we're missing something. Other thoughts? I think there are some things you can be certain of. Okay. Out of nine or ten. Okay. Um, it involves 
a number of things that get you there, but mainly the Holy Spirit revealing to you very central things like Christ being who he is and doing what he did and rising from the dead. I'm 100% certain on those things. Good. Yes, there are some things that are beyond what we call exegetical certainty. There are some things that hit 100%. The resurrection, 100%. This is what the Bible is talking about. The New Testament is talking about resurrection. The New Testament talks about it. Now, there are parts where we go back and Jesus points to, hey, this also was talking about resurrection. And there are different parts in the Bible in the Old Testament where they seem to be talking about resurrection and our exegetical certainty is helped by the fact that the New Testament makes that plain. But if we didn't have the New Testament, we'd have a lower exegetical certainty. Like when he said he was going to tear down the temple and build it up again in three days, they have zero understanding. <laughs> right, right. So it changes. April? Okay, sure. Um, one of the things that is, that is a common mistake among people who, who are highly skeptical and are always pushing the low certainty end of things is what they will say is, and this is where we lead into what's called postmodernism. So Jerry mentioned it from the pulpit this morning, postmodernism. And... <clears throat> That's where the idea is, can I know with 100% certainty at all times that I've reconstructed an author's intention? The answer, obviously, is going to be no. It's going to be no. Any honest person is going to say no. I can't do that all the time. So the postmodernist says, therefore, you can if you can never know that you've done it, and then they kind of take the sleep, it means you can never do it, which means... You don't need to try. So if I can't reconstruct an author's intention, then I don't pay attention to an author's intention because I can never know that I've done it anyhow. So what does it matter? Do we at least understand the, the way that goes? The problem with that thinking is not having certainty is not the same thing as having accomplished a task. So if I, I don't know, I'm, my mind is fishing. This sounds really a crude analogy. But if I'm blind, let's just say, and someone puts a jigsaw puzzle down in front of me, and I make all the pieces fit, can I have a really high confidence that I've reconstructed that image correctly? Is that possible? Can I know 100% for certain without sight that I've done it, though? But it's possible that the person has done it, isn't it? Okay, so do I have to know 100% that I've reconstructed an author's intended meaning in order to actually do it? See, there's a logical step that postmodernists take in order to banish the author. And, and it's a problem. Now, I'm not an expert in critical theory. Just saying that that's, that's one of the big problems. And then meaning is meaningless. Because it then becomes a free-for-all. Whatever a person reads is what the text means. So you get, if you hear the phrase readings, what they're doing is a postmodern approach to something. Oh, there's this reading, and there's that reading, and there's that reading of the text. Because there is no author's meaning anymore. It's just what a well-educated person reads or what a community reads into a text. So we're going to reject that. We're going to reject that approach, the postmodern approach entirely. Um, not that it's devoid of insights, because sometimes, as we've discovered, our assumptions are misleading, but allowing some of them, some of them are good. So we take our biases and we build on them, and so it can lead us in a good direction. But they will teach that the author is not the sole authority of what a text means. And I think, I think we've made a good case that the author's meaning is what we should be looking for the author, when we come to the Bible. The author's historical meaning is what we should be looking for, but not where we're stopping, as we've brought out in a couple of texts. So 
historical, what's referred to as historical grammatical hermeneutics. And then we're not going to stop there. We're going to add something on top of that because it's not just what that author intended consciously. Now, there are good, God-fearing, church-planting, Jesus-loving people who will say historical, grammatical, and that's it. Once you've got the author's meaning, the only thing the Bible means is what the person who wrote it meant. Jesus kind of kills that when he says to Peter, it's flesh and blood as it revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. We'll dive into it more next week. The historical, grammatical approach only, people will say... Right, he was conscious of it because God revealed it to him. So it was his conscious thought. So we'll get into the problems that that creates next week when we actually turn our attention to several biblical passages because what next week I'm going to try to do is we've talked about the problems, we've talked about the text, we've talked about the people who are interacting or the entities, the author, the text itself, us as readers. We've talked heavily about us as readers We've talked heavily about the distance that's in between the problems. We've talked about the problems. So now we're going to see what are some solutions. How is it, and just the preview is, if the Bible is our standard, as Paul tells us, that it is um, good for instruction, reproof, correction, all of that, then even a hermeneutical method should be in there somewhere. If the man of God is going to rightly divide the word, part of that should be in the Bible. We should be able to see people doing hermeneutics. And in fact, the Bible has that. We have people interpreting the Bible in the Bible and then telling us how they interpret it, or at least implying a method of interpretation. So our last week, we're going to wrap up, look at a few examples of how people in the Bible interpret the Bible in order to kind of surmount some of these questions of fuller meaning and prophetic utterance and things like that. Would someone like to pray uh, in closing?